0: Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And it begins, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, And one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, if you uh, consider the flow of the Gospels, the leading, you know, that lead up to the book of Acts, what you see uh, is the incarnation of Jesus, right? God became a man for our redemption, and the Gospels then revealed to us the perfect sinless life of our Savior, culminating in His sacrificial death, His substitutionary sacrifice, um, where He bore the sins of the world upon the cross, giving Himself a ransom for all and putting away sin for all who placed their faith in Him. And then following that, we have the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day, which is the proof uh, of his acceptable sacrifice and of uh, our justification, right? All this, all these events lead up to what we're looking at today, which is the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who dwells in the church, and empowers believers for the work of the ministry. And and I said it last week, I'll say it again, man, I'm so excited to go through the book of Acts, to study through the book of Acts, Acts, just to see what the Lord has for us in this book. Well, it says in verse one, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. This chapter begins with the disciples all together in one place. And I think a lot of people when they read the this portion of scripture, you know, they somehow come to this conclusion they think that maybe it was just the 12 disciples that were all together at this time. But we read last week and we see it in Acts chapter 1 verse 15, it says And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120, right? And uh, so we can assume that there were about 120 people present at this time. Now, it just makes me wonder, what happened to the great multitudes of people that were following Jesus? You know, where are the 5,000 men besides women and children that Jesus fed in Matthew chapter 14? You know, what happened to the over 4,000 men that he fed, not counting women and children, in Matthew chapter 15? What happened to the multitudes, to all the multitudes that met Jesus in Jerusalem during his triumphal entry, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, what happened to the multitude of people that followed Jesus from beyond the Jordan? You know, from Decapolis. You know, from all over Judea and Jerusalem and, and Samaria. What happened to all of them? Where are they? Where are the thousands upon thousands of people that follow Jesus. You know, the thousands upon thousands of people that he healed. You know, the Bible tells us that he healed all that came to him. You know, where are they? You know how people are. I mean, how fast rumors travel too. And and they all must have known all over the country. They must have known by this time that Jesus is resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once. But we're told here that there's just a small group in comparison to the multitudes, again, probably only about 120 people. You know, where are the thousands? You know, the answer is, you know, I don't, I don't really know. You know, it just makes me wonder, did they fall away? I mean, sadly, I mean, that does happen to some people. Sadly, some people, they just kind of lose interest. Sadly, some people just kind of drift away. You know, I don't want to be too hard on any of them. Maybe they're exactly where they're supposed to be. You know, I I don't really know. But I also wonder who was there that day, don't you? Who was numbered in that 120? You know that the 12 were there as well as those that were very close to Jesus, right? We, We know from Acts 1 that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was present along with his brothers, James and Jude, and probably his other brothers that are listed there in Matthew 13, 55. They're probably there too. You know, we're told that the women who followed Jesus were present, and that almost certainly is a reference to Mary Magdalene, uh, maybe um, Salome and others, you know. And I'll bet you anything, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, I bet you they were present You know, I wonder if Zacchaeus was among the 120 that were there. You know, I I wonder if blind Bartimaeus was there, if he's part of that group. I wonder if any of the lepers that Jesus healed were present that day. Again, I'll bet you anything, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea was present. You know, if you think about it, this really must have been just a, a... Uh, Interesting group of people that were present, all praying, all seeking the Lord with one heart, gathered together with one mind, having the same love, unified. I mean, beautifully unified in the Lord. What an example that is for the church as a whole. What an example that is for all of us who call Calvary Chapel Truckee home. And it says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And I think that this is an interesting comment on the events because just 50 days earlier, the Passover had fully come, right? The Jewish people had celebrated the Passover for over 1,500 years. And each one of those Passover celebrations was looking forward to the Passover where Jesus would lay down his life for the sins of the world. Now, as you know, the Passover was instituted when the children of Israel were set free from their bondage uh, as slaves in Egypt, right? It was a feast of redemption, of salvation, You know, they took the blood of the lamb that was slain and they poured it out into the basin. You know, there at the bottom of the uh, door. And what they would do is they were instructed to take hyssop and dip it into that blood. And they would apply it to the doorpost. The upright portions of the door, they would apply it to both doorposts. And then they'd dip it in again and they'd apply it to the lentil. They apply it to the doorpost and the lentil, and then the other doorpost and the lentil, right? And what happened is, you know, it was, it was a picture that was created on that very first Passover of the lamb that would be slain between two crosses. You know, it was a, it was a prophetic picture of Golgotha. Jesus, the Lamb of God, crucified between two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. You know, the Passover was prophetic. Looking forward to the time that it would be fulfilled in the Messiah. Colossians 2.17 tells us that the Old Testament feasts are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The entirety of the Old Testament points to Jesus. It's all intended to point the Jewish people to their Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. You know what they did was they selected the Passover lamb four days before it was to be slain. Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, four days uh, before the Passover. You know, they would select the lamb without spot spot, or blemish. And Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. You know, the lamb was to be a male of the first year. In other words, it was to be in the prime of its life. You know, Jesus laying down his life, the ransom for many at age 33, was pretty much in the prime of his life. The Passover lamb was not to have any of its bones broken when the soldiers came to hasten the death of those who were being crucified that day. They, the soldiers came to Jesus to break his legs, but they saw that he was already dead, right? So none of his bones were broken in fulfillment of prophecy, right? The Passover lamb was to be roasted in the fire, uh, You know, not boiled. Specifically, it says not boiled. Nothing was to insulate it from the full heat of the fire. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, who takes away the sins of the world, endured the fullness of God's righteous indignation poured out upon him in our stead. The Old Testament feast of Passover was just a shadow. And the light was shining on Jesus from all eternity past, casting uh, his shadow over the feast, and prophetic pictures of the Old Testament, you know so the the feast you know uh, was just a substance, and again, uh, sorry, the feast was just a shadow, and the substance was Christ. you know all of these pictures are pictures of Jesus Christ in his incarnation, life, and ministry. You know, and so that feast of Passover had fully come 50 days earlier. Christ was crucified on the Passover, fulfilling the types associated with it. Then, three days after the Passover, right, is the Feast of First Fruits. And it too had fully come. During the Feast of First Fruits, the Priests would go into the temple with a sheave of grain. Normally, that sheave of grain was a barley sheave because barley uh, came early in the harvest. And the priests would wave the barley sheaves to the loaf in front of the golden altar. You know, it was an offering to the Lord in anticipation of the harvest to come, right? Some 50 days after the Passover. Again, it was a prophetic picture fulfilled in Jesus. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that Jesus is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Again, the feast was just a shadow, but the substance is Christ. And then 50 days after the Passover is the feast of Pentecost. It was a celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Now, You need to understand the wheat harvest, it was much more substantial. It was much more important to the economy of Israel. So on Pentecost, the first fruits of the wheat harvest was now presented to the Lord. Now, uh, again, I'm sure you know this, the word pente, it it means five or 50. So the Jewish uh, people, they were instructed to count out seven Sabbaths, seven Sabbaths. 49 days plus one, equaling 50 after the Passover. And that would be the day they celebrated the Feast of Pentecost. Or uh, Leviticus 23 also calls it the Feast of Weeks. You know, it always fell on a Sunday, the first the first day of the week. Right? It always fell on a Sunday. One other thing that's interesting about the Feast of Pentecost is found in Leviticus 23, 15 through 17. And it says, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seven Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling two wave loaves, of two-tenths of an ephah, and they shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? The priests were to bring two loaves of bread, not like Dave's killer bread, you know, or wonder bread. This bread's supposed to be, you know, is probably more like a really nice, really thick pita bread. And the priests would bring these two loaves of bread before the altar, they'd wave them to the Lord, and uh, you know it was it was symbolizing Lord, all that we have is yours, everything that we, it's your provision, and we're giving back to you. It's all yours. But did you see the interesting thing about that offering, to the Lord, the loaves were to be leavened, right? Now that was that's very unusual in the sacrificial system, right? you wouldn't normally offer anything with leaven or yeast to the Lord because it's always a picture of sin in the Bible, right? But this offering was a prophetic picture of the church. It was a foreshadowing of not only Israel being saved, but it also pictured the multitude of Gentiles that would be saved by Jesus, the Savior of the world. The waving of these two uh, loaves of bread Pictured the wall of separation being broken down. The, that wall that separates Jew and Gentile. You know, one loaf representing uh, the Jewish people. Another loaf representing the Gentile making up the church. And that's what exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Jewish tradition tells us that Pentecost was the day that Moses brought the law down from the mountain, delivered the law to the people. It was the Old Testament day of Pentecost that the law was given. And as you know, 3,000 people died that day. And now, after uh, celebrating the Feast of Pentecost for over 1,500 years, now it had fully come. And on this New Testament day of Pentecost, The church received the spirit of grace in its fullness. You know, uh, it happened on the first day of the week on a Sunday and 3,000 people were saved, you know. And again, it's an Old Testament picture being beautifully fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. By the way, it's the reason the church meets on Sunday today, right? Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And the Spirit was poured out on the church on a Sunday, the first day of the week. The early church met on Sundays to commemorate these two events. Well, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were were all with one accord in one place. The phrase, um, with one accord, means that they were in total agreement. You know? They were of the same mind. It's a a wonderful and beautiful thing when the church is of the same mind, in total agreement of one accord. And we read that they were in one place. Verse 2 tells us, calls that place a house. So we want to ask ourselves, where and what is this place uh, that they're meeting in? Some believe that it was the same upper room where Jesus and his disciples enjoyed that Last Supper and instituted uh, communion. Others think that it was, you know, some room, some place in the city near the temple precincts. You know, personally, I don't think that either one of those explanations adequately uh, revealed to us, you know, where this place was, what type of place it was. You know, and the reason I think that is because, The houses and buildings that were around the temple were probably not big enough for thousands of people to meet in. You might say, well, Gary, I mean, why does there need to be, you know, space for a thousand people? In fact, you know, there's only, you mentioned, there's probably only 120 people present. Well, the reason why I say there needs to be enough room for thousands to gather together is because we're going to see 3,000 people get saved as a result of Peter's preaching that day. And I'm guessing that not everyone that heard him preach that day, um, you know, uh, were saved. So it had to be large enough for thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So in light of this, I think the better understanding of where these events actually take place, it was probably actually in the temple court. You know, the temple had plenty of space to allow large uh, groups of people to gather. They were actually rooms and porticos all around the temple courts in that day. And it wasn't uncommon for A number of rabbis, you know, to be teaching their disciples all over the temple grounds, right? And not being interference to one another. And on top of all of that, on top of all of that, Acts 2 tells us in regards to the early church, they continued daily with one accord in the temple. So again, you might say, but wait a minute, Gary. It says uh, that the whole house was filled. Well, yeah, it, it says that. But remember, Jesus said in Matthew 21, 13, speaking of the temple, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So those are my thoughts, uh, where this place is, where these things took place. If you think otherwise, that that's okay. I don't really think it's all that important, you know, in, in the end. Um, so, Just so we get it straight, let's try to see the scenario. Let's get it straight in our minds. Ten days before this, Jesus uh, ascended into heaven. And the disciples of Jesus watched them go up and up and up until they couldn't see him anymore. And you can even turn back a page and read in Acts 1, 10, 11, it says, And while they looked up steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, Jesus went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, verse 11, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So they knew that Jesus had gone into heaven and was not coming back until the time that he came to set up his kingdom. But before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told them to wait here in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. You know, for the glorious appearing of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told them um, they were to wait in Jerusalem until that happened. Now, we need to remember that the disciples were not a stranger to the idea of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we need to need to understand that too. When Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit, right, it wasn't like they said, Holy Spirit, like what's that? Right, they had a really good understanding of the Holy Spirit because they had seen the Holy Spirit work, you know, and operate in the life of Jesus. You know, they actually had the best insight into what the Holy Spirit-filled life looked like, they had a firsthand close-up and personal view of the Holy Spirit just because they would spent time with Jesus, right? Uh, they also had a taste of the Holy Spirit work in their lives as they stepped out and served God. Remember when Jesus sent out His disciples two by two, He gave them power over unclean spirits. They were to preach repentance, and they were given power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And that was all accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples are no stranger to the idea of the Holy Spirit. They also had already received the Holy Spirit in a new way after Jesus had breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, John 20, 22. Now, what do you think happens when Jesus breathes on you and says, Receive the Holy Spirit? I'm not terribly smart. I think he received the Holy Spirit. You know, that's how tough Bible study is sometimes, right? So the idea of the Holy Spirit is not at all foreign to the disciples. So I think the events probably went something like this Jesus ascends into heaven. But not before he tells his disciples to wait. Hey, listen, guys. Make sure you wait here in Jerusalem, you know, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So they go back to Jerusalem that very day. They've just seen Jesus go up to heaven. They go back to uh, Jerusalem that very day. And don't you think they were excited? I mean, they were like, of course they were excited. Jesus said he was going to send them the Holy Spirit So they go back and they begin to pray and probably had the best prayer meeting they ever had. Don't you think in their minds, they probably thought that the Holy Spirit was gonna come that afternoon. They probably prayed and said, Jesus, you're so good. You said you're gonna send the Holy Spirit. So Lord, send him. Send him now, Lord, and he'll come. We're waiting. Send him now, Lord. Then a couple days passed and they probably prayed, well, of course, Lord. I mean, we see it now. You wanted to wait until the third day. Yeah, Lord, you're painting a picture. We see it now, Lord. So send your Holy Spirit now. It's a picture that's complete. We're ready, Lord. What do you think happened that third day? Nothing. Well, at least nothing of note we need to understand we need to make no mistake about it there's always something happen when happens when god's people gather and pray but in terms of the outpouring of the holy spirit it didn't happen that day don't you think they might have felt a little bit let down you know don't you think they might have felt a little bit discouraged you know then day 4 came and went day 5 day 6 then, well, of course, Lord. <laughs> Why didn't we see it before? Day seven, it's the number of completion, it's perfection. Of course, Lord. I get it now. Do it, Lord. Send the Holy Spirit. You know, we're ready, Lord. And what happens? Nothing. Day eight, you know, the number of new beginnings. Day nine, 10 days is a long time to wait for things to happen when you don't know when they're going to happen. I mean, just put yourself in in the disciples' shoes for a minute. Don't you think it would have been much easier for them if Jesus had yelled down as he's going up, hey, it's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. You know, why didn't Jesus do that? Well, I can only imagine what kind of deep spiritual work God wanted to do in the hearts of the disciples over the course of those 10 days. You know, none of us like to wait. One day, three days, five days, seven days, ten days. Might as well be a lifetime. You know what? I don't like waiting ten minutes. You know, we all hate waiting. I hate it. And sometimes the Lord has us waiting for years. And I think the Lord would speak to us this morning. You know, maybe He would speak to you this morning. If you find yourself in a period of waiting on Him, especially if you've been waiting a long time, I think the Lord would say to us, I think He would say to you, don't give up. I'm doing a work. I'm preparing you for something special. I'm, I'm confident that if the Lord has you waiting, it's because He's doing something wonderful. Something that's so far beyond what you could even begin to comprehend right now. Whatever, Garrett, you know. That's just what pastors say. How could you possibly even know that? I know it because I know my Lord. You know, He's not a God that would have you wait just to make you miserable, to make you suffer, to make you sweat. You know what? He's not a God that that has you wait just to get back at you for something that you did or something that you failed to do. That's not my God. If he has you in a period where you're waiting on him, he's allowing it in order to accomplish a greater thing in your life. He's allowed it in order to produce dependence, in order to bring about healing, um, in order to come to an end of yourself that you might be able to make that confession, Lord, you know, I don't have any more strength to keep on fighting. Lord, please take my life. Make it what you want it to be. Do you understand that the Lord has his own timing? <laughs> Do you know that he sees what you can't see and he knows what you don't know, what you can't even begin to know? Are you aware that waiting on him to open doors to fulfill his promises to you, it's actually protection, right? He's protecting you so you don't get out in front of Him and get into all kinds of trouble. You know what? He loves you and wants the best for you. You know what? One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 30, 18, which says, "'Therefore the Lord will wait that He may be gracious to you. And therefore He will be exalted that He may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice.'" blessed, or, and it could be translated, oh, how happy are all those who wait on him. You know, Isaiah 64, four, another one of my favorite verses. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You know what? Waiting on the Lord, seeking His face in obedience in order to receive His promises never results in disappointment. It always results in untold blessing. Right? No one in heaven right now, if you were able to ask them, no one would say, man, I wish I wouldn't have spent so much time waiting on the Lord. I mean, that was just a waste of time. Oh my goodness. You know, seeking His face, waiting on Him. I had a hundred better things to do. No, no, nobody would say that. On the contrary, everyone in heaven right now, if you could ask them, they would say, I wish I would have been more disciplined to wait upon the Lord. And everyone, uh, each one of them would advise us to heed David's advice in Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen, which says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Just think what would have happened if the disciples would have given up after nine days. You know, they they would have missed out on, you know, all kinds of things, the blessings that they would have missed out on. You know, God doesn't work according to our time schedule. I wish he would, but he's a lot smarter than I am. What do you mean by that? (laughs) You know, the disciples, they stayed together. They, they sought the Lord. They pressed in. They continued on. And they were obedient to the Lord's instruction. And again, such a great example. Such a great example to us. Verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You know, I find it interesting that it says, Suddenly. I mean, would any of you say it happened suddenly after waiting 10 days? But, you know, the idea is that, you know, they had an expectation, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit was poured out. I uh, I, I found that that's the way it seems like the Lord frequently works in our lives. We pray, and we wait with expectation. And there's this period of time that passes. And then all of a sudden, God moves. And at that point, it's all you can do just to hang on. God's going for it. And you're hanging on. In verse two, it says, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And we need to notice it's not a wind that came and filled the house. It's the sound as of or a sound like a mighty rushing wind and not just the sound of wind it's a sound like I said a mighty rushing wind it was a sound of a of a mighty wind or in other words it was a sound of a wind with power associated with it again i think it's interesting to note that the spirit is associated with the sound of a mighty rushing wind because In both Hebrew and Greek, Latin as well, the word uh, spirit is the same word for breath or wind. If God wanted to assure the disciples on this day of Pentecost of sending forth his Holy Spirit upon them, uh, the most logical expression, uh, you know, what, what more logical expression could he express than the sound of a rushing mighty wind? The sound from heaven was the sound of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them. You know, Jesus himself likened the Holy Spirit to a wind when he said to Nicodemus, uh, John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And since these disciples had come from a background that grounded, it's, it's steeped in the Old Testament, they would have also, um, you know, associated this event of the Holy Spirit being poured out with Ezekiel 37, verses 4 through 9, where the Lord commanded the prophet Ezekiel to prophesy to the valley of dry bones, saying, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will put sinews on you and bring forth upon you, cover you with a skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, I looked, the sinew and the flesh came upon them and the the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. It was the Spirit of God, you know, or the the wind of God that moved on those dry bones, bringing them back to life, filling them, giving them new strength. You know, I also find it interesting that God moves quickly when He moves, but it says He moved with the sound. And I find this interesting for two reasons. One, it may be, think about this, okay, it may be that our ears are the sensory great gate that God uses most often. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus said, take heed what you hear with, your, with the same measure you use. It will be measured to you and to you who hear, more will be given. Jesus said to the churches in Revelation uh, chapter 2 and 3, he said seven times, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, it seems to me that the Lord uses the ear gate where the enemy seems to use the eye gate, right? Eve saw the forbidden fruit was good for food. The Bible says that the lust of the eyes is a common avenue where temptate, where we're tempted to sin and it may be one reason why we're encouraged to walk by faith, not by sight. You know, I, I just find that interesting. You may want to give it a little more thought to see if what I'm saying is true or not. I mean, don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. The second reason I find this interesting is that God moved with a sound, right? Now, sound is something that's real, but not something that's seen. No one would argue that sound isn't real, that it doesn't exist, you know. But it's something that you can feel and not see, right? You can see the effects of sound, but you can't touch it. And it's something that can also be very powerful. I mean, certain frequencies can uh, shatter glass, right? But at the same time, it's something that's very soothing and comforting. You know, isn't it a beautiful picture of God here? You know, we can't see him, but we can see the effect he has on people's lives and on the events all around us. You know, we can't touch him, but we can feel his touch, right? He's all-powerful. Who can stand against him? But at the same time, he's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation. You know, the final thing that that we want to notice is verse 2 is that the sound came from heaven. John the Baptist testified that he saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained upon Jesus. And Jesus ascended into heaven 10 days earlier so that he could send the Holy Spirit from heaven to rest upon his disciples on this day of Pentecost, which had fully come. In Acts chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as a fire, and one uh, sat upon each of them. Now, it doesn't actually say, but we assume that the tongues of fire came to rest upon their heads, okay? So it's important to notice that it's it wasn't actually a flame of fire. No one's hair, you know, uh, was set on fire that day. No one's hair began to smolder and smoke and burst into flame. No one was running around screaming, put it out, put it out nothing like that. Just as the sound of the wind was not actually wind, the the tongues of fire are not actually fire, right? Uh, We know that from the text because it says uh, it was as of fire, meaning it was like fire. The best they could describe it was like, it was like fire, right? Something that... uh, you know, something like what maybe Moses had encountered at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. It was like a fire, but it didn't consume the bush, right? It was like a fire, but it didn't act like a fire. You know, in the Bible, the picture behind fire is often that of purification and acceptance right? Like the refiner's fire. The refiner would apply fire to the metal to cause the impurities to rise to the surface. And when the impurities rose, the refiner could remove them, making the metal pure, leaving something that was beautiful, something that was lasting and enduring. It speaks to us that the Holy Spirit isn't poured out upon us just so that we can, you know, experience some abstract power. He's poured out upon us for our purity. And we also see in the Old Testament, God would show his special pleasure with the sacrifice or offering by sending fire from heaven to consume it. God would, would set the sacrifice on fire instead of the priest lighting the fire um, for the sacrifice. God, in sending fire from heaven, would show the people that he was pleased with their sacrifice. You know, this outpouring of the Spirit here in Acts 2, represented by tongues of fire, showed His, that, uh, showed His disciples His power and His pleasure with them, giving their lives as a living sacrifice, something that all of us are instructed to do in Romans 12.1. One thing I always try to remind myself of and encourage myself with when I read this passage, and I, and I want to encourage you with it this morning? It says in verse three, then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire and one set upon each of them. Again, it doesn't say, but we assume it was on their head. So, you know, uh, let's say you were in that room that day, right? Imagine yourself, one of 120. How many flames of fire would you see? Think about it. 120 people in the room. How many flames of fire would you see? you'd see 119. You'd see 119. Because you, you wouldn't see your own. You know? Everybody's got one but me. And, and you know what? I find this very comforting, this understanding, as I take it in by faith. Because so often we see the gifts and God-given abilities of others and wonder, Lord, could you even use someone like me? You know, I mean... When people ask you, you know, and people will ask, you know, they'll ask you, hey, what's your calling and giftings? When they ask me, honestly, you know, I'm not really sure what my giftings are. I know what God has called me to. He's called me to teach the Bible. He's called me to disciple people. He's called me to missions. But, you know, I'm not really sure what gifts God has given me to carry out that call. You know, I find that people who are really anointed a of Lord often aren't even aware of that anointing. You know, it's just natural to them. It's who they are, right? And God works through them supernaturally, but in a very natural way. You know, I think it's His way of protecting us again, keeping us humble and and dependent on Him. We also want to notice here that the tongues of fire weren't just on the apostles because they were special. I mean, they weren't somehow super Christians right? That's not the case. The tongues of fire fell upon each and every one of the followers of Christ that were seeking Him, that were waiting on Him, waiting and praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In fact, later Peter, he goes on to preach to the crowd and says that this was all according to the prophecy of Joel, saying that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh, Right? And, and that's what is being emphasized here in verse four when it says, and they will all, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now, we're not going to talk about the gift of tongues today. We'll address that in another study, perhaps next week, Lord willing. But take a look at verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is so interesting important to understand. The sound of the rushing mighty wind and the tongues of fire, they were only temporary things. They weren't lasting, right? The true gift was that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that what we need today? Isn't that what we desperately need here at Calvary Chapel Trucky? Isn't that what you're longing for today? We can all be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we don't have to have, we don't need the sound of the rushing mighty wind. We don't need the tongues of fire as an evidence of the outpouring of the Spirit. Why? Because we have the promise of Jesus himself. Jesus said in Luke 11, 9 through 13. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and he and him who knocks, it will be open. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Here you go, son. Here's a rock. Go chew on that a while. Or if he asks for fish, will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Here you go, son. Here's a poisonous snake. Try choking that down now to satisfy your hunger. Or verse 12, if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? Daddy, could I I have an egg salad sandwich? Here you go, son. Here's a scorpion. Go play. Leave me alone now. You know, who would do that? Certainly not any of us here this morning. Probably no one we know. Jesus goes on to say, verse 13, if then... You being evil in comparison to a holy God, God the Father. If then you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now notice there in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, the verse we're looking at here, Jesus isn't asking a question, right? It's not a question. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? Question mark. It's not there. It's a statement of fact. Gee, God is willing to give the Holy Spirit in greater measure than what we ask. You know, we should never doubt God's willingness to pour out His Spirit upon us. Actually, the problem is, are we willing to receive Him by faith? Right? Are we willing to step out in faith, in expectant faith, expecting the power of the Holy Spirit to be present? God desires. no. no should, dare I say, God is blessed to give His Holy Spirit liberally to all who ask. That's what Jesus is saying here. None of us will ever ask God, To fill us with this Holy Spirit. And then be the same person after we make that request. You know. But we need to receive the Holy Spirit by faith. I think that each of us would agree. That we need the Holy Spirit. We don't need the tongues of fire. We need the Holy Spirit. We don't need the sound of the rushing mighty wind. We need the Holy Spirit. Right. And we need to understand. The way the Lord wishes to fill me may not be the way he wants to fill you, and vice versa, right? He desires to give us the Holy Spirit to fill us, to lead us, to guide us and empower us to walk with him and to live the Christian life as a witness for his glory. He desires that. You know, sometimes when uh, I'm asked to teach in another church, you know, it's just who I am. I'm a jokester. I don't mean anything by it. I joke. I joke. You know, so when I'm asked to teach in another church, sometimes, you know, I'll ask the group I'm speaking to. How many of you are here this morning are in full-time ministry? Go ahead and raise your hand. And and of course, as you'd expect, not many hands go up. And then I turn to the pastor and I say, hey, I thought you said they were Christians. Because you know what? God has called us all to ministry. Are you a Christian today? You're called to ministry. You're called to full-time ministry right? It's not me because I'm a pastor. No, it's us because we're Christians, right? And we need the Holy Spirit to work in us to carry out the ministry He's called us to. And He's called each and every one of us to ministry. We need to understand that. We need the Lord to pour out His Holy Spirit on each of us, enabling us, equipping us for the ministry He's entrusted to each one of us. And we need to allow Him To do it as He pleases. And we need to wait upon Him. We need to be steadfastly waiting upon Him. You know, steadfastly waiting upon Him with expectation. We need to be seeking Him for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with an undivided heart. With a singleness of heart. A heart that desires to see Him glorified, honored, and exalted. You know, a heart that longs to see The lost, saved. Because that's his heart. That's the Lord's heart. If that's what we're looking for and engaged in, then I believe he will, in a very unexpected way, give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not to bounce around, you know, like a bunch of weirdos, you know, causing a scene in church. You know, freaking out every visitor that comes in to worship the Lord with us. But I believe he will... Give the Holy Spirit without measure in order that we might live and serve our risen Savior in a way that brings the most amount of glory to the Father in a way that is most pleasing to Him. What a wonderful God we have. I mean, we have a God who wants to fill us. But like I said, fire in the Bible speaks of purity and the Holy Spirit is the holy He's holy. He's the Holy Spirit. His power, His work, and His glory is most manifest in the context of a life of holiness and purity. You know, the greatest door we can open to the Holy Spirit in our lives today is through repenting of our sins. You know, maybe this morning there's some, something that the Spirit has been speaking to your heart about. You know, something that He's pointing out to you. The isn't the way it should be. It's just, you know, out of balance, you know. The best thing we can do this morning is respond to Him and get things right. You know, maybe uh, you, you need to uh, get things right with a person, you know. Maybe you need to get things right by letting go of an old attitude, or maybe it's an old habit that needs to let go. Maybe it's an old hurt, you know that you need to let go, an old hurt that somebody's inflicted upon you, I encourage you, let it go today and get it right today. Don't ignore it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't say, you know, Lord, it's not that bad. If, if someone's wronged you, forgive them. Don't carry a burden of unforgiveness. You know, don't say, Lord, you don't know how much they've hurt me. Don't say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that tomorrow. Don't put it off. Get things right today. You know, maybe the problem is that you're mad at God for something He's allowed in your life or something that He hasn't allowed in your life. You know, don't continue to be mad at the very one who sent His Son, you know, to die for you. The very one that loves you more than any other. Run to Him, right? Get things right with Him. He's wanting to show you His love in the fullest possible measure. He desires to blow you away with His love for you. Finally, you know, all that you have to do is ask in faith and trust Him to do it. One day, five days, seven days, you know, ten days. It's, it's really up to Him. What's up to you, what's up to me is just believing that the God who loves us so very much, the God who sent His Son to die on the cross for us, will pour out a Spirit on us in His timing, Right? So we need to wait patiently on Him. Wait obediently on Him. Wait with expectation that He will fulfill His promise to us. Why? Because He loves you. How much more will your Father, Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? It's the promise of the Father. He'll do it if we'll ask and we'll believe. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you so very much for your goodness, for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us individually, on us collectively as a church. And Lord, I pray you'd pour out your Spirit on all the churches that are preaching the gospel faithfully. Not watering it down, but just Trusting you to move with great power. Lord, and we just pray, Lord, as individuals and as a as a church, Lord, whatever's inhibiting you, whatever's a roadblock to you to pour out your Holy Spirit, would you remove it from us, Lord? Whatever attitude, whatever thing from the past we're holding on to, whatever it is, Lord, would you remove it from us? Would you forgive us for it? And Lord, would you move mightily in our midst. Lord, we believe you for it because you promised it to us. If we would ask, we would receive. Lord, forgive us, pour out your spirit. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.